Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hallo und willkommen nach Albumskrieg. Ich bin der Musikant mit Taschenrechner in mein Hand. Wo ist mein Handy? <laughs> Do you know what a Taschenrechner is, Kev? No, but um, I'm going to guess that it's probably something you can get done down the Reaper Barn for a few marks. <laughs> it's a pocket calculator. I mean, you might be able to get a pocket calculator, or I mean, maybe that's a euphemism for something. <laughs> <laughs> the lady gave me a right pocket calculator. Should have seen her cosine. Whoa. <laughs> uh, hello, Kevin. How are you? I am grand. How are you? I'm excited uh, to start our new season. Me too. Uh, well, I'm also excited that uh, New Year is upon us. I mean, it's not. It's not even Christmas yet, but New Year's upon us. It's New Year. Hey. <laughs> Merry New Year. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to start our new season as well. It's electro season. As I said at the end of last week's Christmas Clash, we are charting the history of electronic music. I mean, not every album. That would take too long. Although I'd love to do that. <laughs> yeah, t- trust me, like I would have to make an intervention. That's fair, you would. <laughs> but yes, it's my choice of season. As Kev said last week, I have wanted to do this for a long time. Uh, and it's my choice of clash as well. It very much is. So what do the good ladies and gentlemen have facing them this week? Okay, so this week we are going to be going through Kraftwerk's 1974 breakthrough album, Autobahn. And then next week, you are going to be taking us through to go up against that Jean-Michel Jarre's breakthrough from 1976. Oxygen. Now, I should say, we said oxygen last week, and that was that was a mispronunciation on our part. I do apologize. It's, of course, oxygen, which is just French for oxygen. But anyway. Yeah, but I'm fine annoying uh, the Francophone. Not Francophone nations, just France and, Qu- and Quebec. <laughs> I'm all right with that. You're not a fan of the Quebecois. Well, I mean, it's. I, I don't have a particular beef with Quebec, to be honest. It's more just um, they they seem a bit more grumpy than the normal Canadians. That is very true. They are, but actually, I mean, I think there's good reason to have beef with the Quebecois because they inflicted Celine Dion upon the world. Indeed. <laughs> right. Shall I talk about what connects these two albums? Yeah, go on. I mean, not much other than their early pioneering electro albums. To be honest with you, there's no there's no real direct connections. I mean. There's an influence from Kraftwerk to Jean-Michel Jarre. He talks about how he heard Autobahn and was was sort of inspired to do what he did on Oxygen. So he was he was a little bit sniffy about Autobahn. Like so, I've seen it, and we'll obviously get into this. I've seen a later interview where he basically says, "Oh yeah, well Autobahn's pop, and like mine's like the true electronic music because it had no words in it." Yeah, we'll get yeah, indeed. We'll we'll talk about that more next week, but you're right. He did say that. So to to explain why I chose these two to start because they are not the first two electronic albums. I mean, you could go all the way back to Gershon Kingsley and Jean-Jacques Perry, about whom we've spoken before in, in the 60s if you wanted to really start from the genesis of electronic music. If you really wanted to, you could talk about um Oh God, I forget her first name. Thingy Derbyshire from the BBC um, Electronic Workshop. <laughs> what are you 
So you, you know, like the pioneering um, sounds made for Doctor Who. There's a woman, and I'll have to—I will have to admit to Google in it in a second. And I forget her name now, but I'm sure it's something Derbyshire. And yeah, the obviously all the work that she did, like massively moved forward, like sort of the scope of electronic sound and everything. Sorry, yes, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of quite inaccessible stuff to get into, and and listeners may have listened to these two albums and gone hang on, you're saying there's stuff that's more inaccessible? So, so yeah, there is some really quite difficult stuff to penetrate. Go on. So I have Googled whilst we were talking. So the, the member of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop was Delia Derbyshire. Oh, fair enough. There you go. So, yeah, the, the reason I picked these two is they're both watershed moments, uh, as I would say, in the history of electronic music. They are both albums after which the landscape of popular music was completely changed it's a good it's a good enough reason like as we will certainly get into when we talk about this album is the its influence definitely writ large over future music for a lot of artists including someone that we've mentioned quite a lot because of me indeed <laughs> something tells me you're going to mention him a couple of times today yeah he's gonna he's gonna get he's gonna get the odd mensch <laughs> Uh, all right, before we get into Autobahn, though, do you have any shite stuck in your head, Kev? I do. Go on. I have no idea why it came into my head. There's absolutely no explanation, but Kylie's 1988 hit, if you want to call it that, Je ne sais pas pourquoi, popped into my head the other day, and it's <laughs> fucking dreadful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Kylie's Stock Ake and Waterman days were all dreadful, weren't they, really? Was Bet the Devil You Know like a Stock, stock Ake and Waterman one? Because that, that, that's got at least something to it. I think it was, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So so is it is it literally because you were researching an album by a French artist and so a song with French lyrics came into your head? It could, it could well be that, that simple. It just, the other day, I was emptying the dishwasher and just in my head went, je ne sais pas. I I feel for you. Yeah. (laughs) My shite is not anywhere near as ethereal as that. And actually, it's another one that's come about because of researching this clash. It's Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. (laughs) Listen, it's not that it's terrible. I'm not a huge fan, but it's not terrible. And I I do quite admire its innovation. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was just so ubiquitous in this country that you could not avoid tubular bells through the 80s and 90s, much like the chicken pox, I would say. (laughs) Or in certain parts of Cumbria, the fallout from Chernobyl. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. Also, uh, and here is a definite reason to detest this song, um, it allowed Richard Branson to become a billionaire. Exactly. And so for that reason alone, it should definitely be consigned to the, uh, the the bin of awfulness. Space and balloon blurt. Quite so. And suing the NHS blurt as well. Can we just go there? And creator of shit coke. It was shit coke, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just fucking sweet. And so you had you had Virgin Cola, and then like everyone was like, oh, Sainsbury's Coke's dead nice. No, it wasn't. It was fucking horrible. It was roller cola just by Sainsbury's. <laughs> I was much happier with me shit coke from the pop man. 
<laughs> Give me some Panda Pop cola. Actually, don't. Ours wasn't Panda Pop. It was Scoey's. Came in a glass bottle. Yeah, in glass bottles, and you had to you had to give the glass bottle back. Yeah, yeah, like we had to like the pop man. Well, the thing is, our pop man was also our milkman. It was the same fella. Oh no! Our, so like our milkman had his own line of shit fizzy pop, but like we didn't have that because Scoey's man got in there first. As sidebars go, this perhaps is our most obscure. <laughs> We've managed to get from, from Mike Oldfield, Stevie LaBelle, to talking about how we used to get fizzy drinks delivered in the 1980s. The Schofield Potman. Oh dear! I'm not editing a second of this out. You no. know. <laughs> no, to me, this is gold. It is gold, absolutely right. But yeah, Tubular Bells, not a great fan of it, but purely because of Richard Branson, shite. Yeah. Okay, what do you want to give a shout to? So, um, I have recently been listening to the EP Silk for the Starving by uh, the Lounge Society, which is really, really good. And my favourite track off it is... Kane's Heresy. It's really post-punk. It sounds very Joseph K, bit Fawley again. It's just boss. It's really good. It's a strong recommend. It's a good EP, but I'd say that's the strongest track on it. Okay, so Kane's Heresy, did you say? Kane's Heresy, yeah. Okay. Uh, are you going through a bit of a sort of post-punk new wave phase at the moment, by any chance? I am absolutely bang. But like, these are these are a new bands. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm bang into it. Yeah, I'm, I'm properly in the post-punk phase at the minute. Fair play. The thing I want to give a shout to is the artist about whom I am most excited for 2022. I think they are about to go absolutely stratospheric, actually. I think they're going to be huge. Uh, it was a single released back in June, actually, uh, and it's the song is Shays Long by Wet Leg. I have heard some of their stuff, and I do really like it. I think they are going to do well this year. Yeah, they are. So, so yeah, Shays Long, it was, it was their debut single, actually. It was released back in June. It is really uplifting, quirky guitar pop. Their debut album is coming out on the 8th of April, 2022. And as I said, I think they're going to be absolutely huge. It's so much fun. They've had two or three songs that have have released through the year. Their latest one, Wet Dream, is also brilliant. But yeah, Shays Long is just great. So check it out. I had to resist the temptation to interject and state that the thing you need to look out for is Get Lucky, which I think is going to be the sound of the summer. (laughs) Fine, any reason. I assume you're aware of Limmy. Yes. Yeah, so like every couple of months, he like, he'll like he tweet just saying, check out Get Lucky, new sound of the summer. Like Just every, every couple of months, and it makes me piss every time. <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> okay, we will not be adding Get Lucky by Daft Punk to our no. playlist at this point, but we will add both of the other tracks that we've called out to our playlist on Spotify and on YouTube Music. Uh, we will also tweet out the links to them. Uh, am I right in thinking as well that if you go to our Twitter page, the uh, handle for which you will, of course, uh, give out later on, the pinned tweet uh, is the links to both of our playlists. It is indeed. Great. So go and check them out. Yeah, all sorts of good stuff there. All right. Shall we get on to some top trumps then? Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. So... Even if we discount our Christmas clash, you're not on a good run of late. I whitewashed you with the strokes and uh, Interpol, so you are up against it. I am struggling at the minute, yeah. But I think 
you might be in with a shout today, to be honest with you. I yeah, am I'm, not confident. It's certainly the strongest pack I've had in a while. Definitely. I'm just going to bowl through these in order, to be honest with you. Uh, so I'm going to go with sales first. And I'm re- well, I know I'm going to get absolutely creamed here. So in terms of Autobahn, I, I could not get exact sales figures for Autobahn, but it was around about half a million. Uh, and I know that I've got uh, no chance of winning this one. So yeah, go on. What did Oxygen get? 10 million. Yeah, 10 million copies. It's a slight win. It is indeed. So, uh, okay, your pick. Okay, I'm going to go charts. So, UK reached a high point of number two. (sighs) Number four. Ooh, closer than I thought. Mm. US, high point of number 78. Okay, I've absolutely blitzed you there. Number five in the US. Oh, wow. So, is that a draw? I would say so, yeah. Okay, well, it's still your honour. Okay, so I'm going to go certifications. Right. And because my sales are much better than yours, I'm fairly confident on this one. Yeah. (laughs) So platinum, UK, Australia, Canada. Ah, well, I have no platinums. All I've uh, so no, I have no platinums. Go on. I, I can't confirm or deny that um, a large percentage of the Canada sales were in the Quebecois region. <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly were, though. <laughs> um, surprisingly, France, Poland, and Germany gold. Well, you'd have thought France would be a lot higher than, than, than mm-hmm. gold, I suppose. But um, yeah, okay. So I have. Uh, for Autobahn, I've got silver in the UK and I've got gold in France. So again, you've you've absolutely muddled me there. Okay. Awards. Uh, Autobahn won no awards. <laughs> Oxygen also won no awards. <laughs> no, that's a, considering what you've just said about 10 million sales and certifications all over the show. That's a genuine surprise, actually. Commercially a success, obviously not critically. Well, we're going to come to that next week. Mm-hmm. All right, okay, so I'm 2-0 down with two to go, so I'm not confident. What are you going with next? So I'll go with lists. All right. I think I might lose here because it's only included in the book um, 1001 Albums to Hear Before You Die. Okay, well, Autobahn is also included in the book 1001 Albums to Hear Before You Die. Autobahn was also named by Rolling Stone in 2014 as one of the 40 most groundbreaking albums of all time. So, yeah, I think I win that one. Yeah, you do. Okay, which, well, we're down to, it's only on scores. All Music gave Autobahn 5 out of 5. Four and a half out of five for Oxygen. Okay. Rolling Stone gave Autobahn three and a half out of five, which is not a great review. So I don't have a Rolling Stone review here. I've only got Record Mirror. Okay. What did Record Mirror give? Four out of five. Four out of five. All right. Uh, so I don't have one from Record Mirror. The only other one I've... So I've got one from Pitchfork, which is nine and a half out of ten. What do we do there then? Because we've only got one direct comparison. I'm happy to happy to say that's a draw and take the victory, but <laughs> I'm not sure whether you would necessarily agree. Yeah, yeah, but on the direct comparison, I win that one. So, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to play this round. Surely I've won that. I refuse to play, and I am taking my ball home. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But in that case, you still don't win. So it still doesn't affect the score. So far. let's just call it a draw. It's you've done better than, than losing six 0 Look, I'm tempted to upturn the table and like say it's a stupid game anyway. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, 
on the first three, you know, sales chart certifications, you would all, all like certainly sales asserts, you would comfortably won those. But then when it comes to actually how critics rank and rate the albums mm-hmm. a lot closer and, 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 and Autobahn sort of edges it. And it speaks to the fact that craft work are much more highly lauded by musos, I would say, than Jean-Michel Jarre. Yeah, they're certainly greater, greatly respected for their influence and for their legacy. Definitely. Because I did want to ask a question about that that's just sort of occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, okay. Is part of this, so essentially down to their live performances, Kraftwerk have have maintained a very cool, Teutonic, effective image. And Jean-Michel Jarre is known for the laser light show, and it's a bit cheesy, and it, it certainly loses the cool battle, if you like. I think that's definitely a, a reason. There are other reasons, and there's one particular reason that I want to get into next week, but I want to get into it next week, not now. Okay. But yes, I definitely think your point on live performances has merit because Jean-Michel Jarre is very much seen as part of that 80s excess with the laser light show, with the massive crowds, mm-hmm. etc. Craft work much more, much more cool, much more understated, much more punk, if you like in style, if not in, in, in sound. So I think you have got a very good point there. So I, c- I can remember Kraftwerk doing a performance of Radioactivity in support of Greenpeace by Sellafield. And you too. You too were there as well. All right, okay. Mm-hmm. And Jean-Michel Jarre, I don't know this to be true or anything, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did music for or did a co-performance with David Copperfield. <laughs> <laughs> Right, no, hold on to that for next week because I want to get, I really want to get into this. There's some really, really interesting, interesting optics when it comes to Jar versus Kraftwerk. And so hold on to all this because when it comes down to scoring and when it comes down to legacies of these two artists and these two albums, this is all stuff I actually do want to get into. Fucking hell. I, I thought with an album of five tracks and an album of six tracks, we'd fly through these, no fucking chance. No. <laughs> There's a lot to say. Yeah, there is an awful lot to say, and I suggest we start saying it. <laughs> okay, in the words of Alan Partridge, come and see bitter and listen to craft work. Well, actually, listen to me talk about craft work, but you know, it's same difference. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Autobahn by Kraftwerk. It was their fourth studio album. It was released on the 1st of November 1974 on Philips Records in Germany and in January 1975 on Phonogram in the UK and Vertigo Records in the US. It was produced by the band themselves uh, in collaboration with legendary electronic producer Conrad Connie Plank, Max's lad. Yes, that's right. I'm making physics jokes on the pod now. Constantly. (laughs) Excellent pun. (laughs) So, the album was recorded uh, in early 1974 at Connie Plank's studio near Cologne, and also Kraftwerk's own Kling Klang studio in Dusseldorf. I said it's the fourth studio album. It's very much seen as the birth of the Kraftwerk that we all know and love. So just as I usually do, I want to go back to the start and speak a little bit about how they got to that point. So uh, in 1968, flautist and violin player Florian Schneider met and befriended organ player Ralph Hutter at university in Dusseldorf. 
they joined an experimental five-piece band called Organization, who released one album, which was called Tone Float, in 1970. It was not well received. (laughs) They became, obviously, very interested in the emergence of electronic music and experimental music. In 1970, Florian Schneider bought his first synthesizer. And in 1971, Ralph Hutter bought a very primitive drum machine. And with that, they formed Kraftwerk. So their early performances, even though they had electronic instruments within them, they were very much still part of of what was mockingly called by the British Krautrock. So they were very much part of that Krautrock scene. And the sound that they were producing in those days, whilst it was very far from what we're about to go through on Autobahn, the seeds were being sown. So in a 2016 article with Uncut, which I am going to come back to a few times, Ralph Hutter said, We were mostly like the art scene bands, always on the same bill as can. We had jazz drummers, rock drummers, and I had my little drum machine. At one point in an art centre, nearly 10 years before the robots, I had this drum machine working, playing with feedback and strobe lights. We left the stage and people were dancing to the machines. We didn't have craft work. We didn't have robots. We didn't have the Man Machine album. Nothing. But the concepts were there. But stylistically, they were very much, as I say, part of that that art rock movement that was burgeoning in in Germany at the time and not the the close-cropped hair and, and sharp suits that we know them from. Did they look as though they could be lecturing uh, physics on the Open University at five o'clock in the morning? <laughs> yes, with the notable exception that none of them wore cardigans with suede patches on the elbows. <laughs> what was that about, by the way? What What was the purpose of suede patches on the elbows of a woolly cardigan? No idea. Well, I mean, to be honest, leather patches on, like, a tweed jacket, what's that about? Yeah, it's it's just fucking weird. <laughs> anyway, back to Kraftwerk. Uh, in 71, they uh, were joined by guitarist Michael Rother and drummer Klaus Dinger. They released their first two albums, Kraftwerk and Kraftwerk 2, in 1972, and... Whilst very much, as I said earlier, in that Krautrock mould, there was a clear electronic influence. So, in that same uncut article, Michael Rother said, We had very simple gear. Florian came from the flute. We were at the same school, and he was in the classical orchestra. But at that time, he was already manipulating sound with gadgets like equaliser, delay, and fuzzbox. The result sounded electronic, but it wasn't anything near computers or synthesizers. Now, you may, if you're into the Krautrock scene, you may be familiar with the names Michael Rother and Klaus Dinger, uh, because that Kraftwerk lineup didn't last very long. In fact, in 1972, those two left to form heavyweights of the Krautrock scene, Noi. Oh, right, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, then, so in 73, Kraftwerk released their third album called Ralph and Florian. It was just a two piece there, Hutter and Schneider. It didn't receive a very good reception from critics and all their contemporaries for that matter. In uh, Select Magazine in 1991, Ralph Hutter said, Nobody wanted to play with us because we did all kinds of strange things. Feedbacks and overtones and sounds and rhythms. No drummer wanted to work with us because we had these electronic gadgets. And what really changed... Kraftwerk's direction was when in 1974 Ralph Hutter bought a Mini Moog synthesizer 
which apparently cost him the same as his Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, he said, I had to have that synthesizer and I wanted that Volkswagen. Both meant freedom to me. Uh, around that time in 74, they were also joined by Klaus Roder on violin and guitar and by Wolfgang Fleur on drums and percussion. They went into Connie Plank's studio in Cologne, as I said, which is a newly refurbished studio on a, on a farmhouse just outside of Cologne. And they started work on what would become Autobahn. And for Schneider and Hutter, it was as much uh, about creating a new sound and expanding their sound and experimenting further as it was about creating their sense of identity not just for themselves as a group, but from the scene that they were a part of. So again, Ralph Hutter and Kurt, he said, Autobahn was about finding our artistic situation. Where are we? What is the sound of the German Bundesrepublik? Because at that time, bands were having English names and not using the German language. Wolfgang Fleur, he said, we offered self-confidence. We wanted to show our German appearance with short cropped hair, iron suits and ties not to imitate English pop or American rock. We knew our appearance was ironic, flirtatious and provocative. So there was a definite sense that they wanted to root themselves in their national identity, but almost reclaim the national identity from obviously what it had been just, what, 30 years previously. Mm-hmm. And certainly the some quite lazy journalists, as we will definitely get into, um, couldn't really escape that mindset when considering the band indeed but that's it that's it that i've got on, on background basically uh, unless you've got anything more no no all right so uh, how did you first discover autobahn so i would honestly say it was through you that you got bang into craft work um about five ten years ago and kept going on about them and eventually wore a bit like i did with um stevie wonder <laughs> you did with um craft work and wore me down and just said just listen to it it's really good yeah oh so that brings me on so so similarly I, i've been aware of craft work for a very long time i remember the mix coming out in 91 and as much as I've loved electronic music for a long time, yeah, it was about 10 years ago, I sort of realised, I remember you and I having a conversation, I was like, why haven't I ever listened to more craft work? Mm-hmm. And so I decided to rectify that situation. Uh, and immediately it was like, fucking hell, what have I been missing all this time? So uh, I, I started with Autobahn uh, because I knew of the influence it had had uh, and the, the regard in which it's held uh, and just worked my way forward from there. And... Um, I'm glad I did. Let's put it that way. I am also glad that you did because it got me and it got me to listen to it as well. Well, exactly. Good. Uh, shall we talk about some artwork, Kev? I think we should because it's it's fairly iconic. It is fairly iconic. Well, actually, what is now known as the album cover was not the original album cover. Indeed. All right. So to tell the story, the original German release, the album cover on that was a painting by the band's friend. Uh, artist and poet Emil Schult, and it pictures a scene of a, someone driving a car along the autobahn. Ahead of us is a Volkswagen Beetle depicting Ralph Hutter's car. On the other side of the road, coming towards us, is a black Mercedes executive saloon, basically like the one that was owned by all dictators through the 70s and 80s. <laughs> um, if you're going to murder your population, do it in style. <laughs> That's fair. You know, a, a nice big Mercedes S-Class saloon 
do it in comfort. Exactly. You, you know, you can't compromise on these things, Kevin. You need to show that you've got style. You need to show that you've got taste. Well, if you, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a dictator, compromise is not really on the um, on the agenda. And <laughs> that's a fair point. Yeah. As we know of our knowledge of dictators, I certainly would go down the route of having my own personal water slide. <laughs> Uh, and a golf course on which uh, you uh, achieved uh, 18 holes in one. <laughs> Indeed. Like the greatest golfer ever. <laughs> anyway, moving on. If you are familiar with Autobahn, then that is not the album cover that you will know. So for the British release, Phonogram adopted a much more minimalist cover. Basically, they just used the road sign for the Bundes Autobahn. And, well... We've mentioned my collage of uh, album covers before, which sits behind me as I record the show. It is very much there because it is an iconic album cover. It's brilliant. Lovely font. It has got a lovely font. Lovely minimalist font, absolutely. It's the sans serif again. You know, do away with the serif. It's unnecessary. Like, I'm bang I'm bang into it. It's minimalist. It's got bold colours. It's and it's such a memorable cover. You it don't is. need anything more because, like, everyone remembers. Like, if you've seen that cover, you know, you know Autobahn. Exactly. And, and like, it's so, it's so obvious, but it's fucking genius at the same time. What do you need to convey the Autobahn at the fucking road sign for the motorway? Boom. There you go. It's right there in front of you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So someone who was very much inspired by the album cover is someone we've spoken about a couple of times before, Peter Saville, who, as we've said, did many of the iconic Factory Records sleeves. He said the Autobahn sign had a markedly profound and enlightening influence on me. It advanced my notions of visual communication enormously. I mean, the, the original covers, it's a nice image, and so that is now that now adorns the inner sleeve of the album. But it's not the revised cover. It's, well, yeah, as we just said, it's a classic. It's iconic. It's beautiful in its simplicity. It's great. Yeah, it's, 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 a, lov- it's a lovely piece of work, and it, it works incredibly effectively. It does indeed. All right, I guess it's time to start going through the tracks, is it? Yeah, I've got nothing more to add. Okay, so we start with the title track, Autobahn, which comes in at a mere 22 minutes and 47 seconds and takes up, if you have the vinyl version, the entirety of side A. So before I start getting into the track, Kev, what do you make? When you first heard this, what did you make of being told to... Because you just said it was me that said, listen to this, a fucking 23-minute long song. What was your reaction when you first heard it? So whilst I have I have regularly railed against bloated songs that are self-indulgent, I have also listened to the works of Pink Floyd. So <laughs> coming across a 22-minute song is not is not unknown to me. I mean, I've also listened to the live version of Moby Dick by Zeppelin, and yeah. Christ, that's a long old piece of work. <laughs> so, and if you've ever listened to any Miles Davis, then fucking hell, <laughs> <laughs> strap in. <laughs> All right, I, I, before I talk about the music and what we think of it, I, there's a few things I want to go through. So, a much edited three and a half minute version was released as a single. I mean, how the fuck do you get 23 minutes down to three and a half minutes? Anyway, that aside, that was basically what propelled 
Kraftwerk's ascendancy, if you like. It reached number 11 in the UK and number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100. The lyrics were written by the same guy that painted the original cover, Emil Schultz. They are often mistaken for being an English saying fun, fun, fun off the Autobahn. Sort of being as a riff on the Beach Boys fun, fun, fun. Um, now that Daddy took the T-Bird away. That is not the case. So they actually read, we're fan, fan, fan off the Autobahn, which translated into English is we drive, drive, drive on the motorway. So as quoted on all music, Wolfgang Fleur said, that is wrong about the mistranslation, but it works. Driving is fun. We had no speed limit on the Autobahn. We could race through the highways, through the Alps. So yes, fan, 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 fun, fun, fun. But it wasn't anything to do with the Beach Boys. Yeah, and I was definitely one of those people who was mistaken and definitely thought it was fun, fun, fun off the Autobahn. So to be fair, they didn't mind the Beach Boys comparison, the Beach Boys connection. So again, Wolfgang Fleur. Germany also needed something like the Beach Boys. Something with self-understanding and immaculate presence after the ugly wars that our parents had inflicted on the world. Something positive and youthful that freed us from the stench of the past. Which goes back to what I said about them wanting to create a new sense of identity for German youth. And if you think of the era that we're in, um, in Germany as well, that this is the Willy Brandt, the Chancellor at the time, goes to Poland and does like a sort of apology for the Holocaust. So he, he kneels at a, a Holocaust memorial in Poland. This is the this is the era of the Bader Meinhof. You've had the Munich Olympics and Black September and everything that happens there. You know, this is there's a fucking hell of a lot going on in Germany. Plus, you've it's divided as well. This is a, a really weird point in German history. It is. You've also got the World Cup in Germany in 74, in the year this album. So so at the time this album is mm-hmm. being recorded, Germany is inviting the world in to show the nation that it is becoming. And losing to East Germany in the process. <laughs> yes, indeed. But still winning the World Cup. Anyway, to the song itself. It's structured in a way as to recreate the experience or the sounds of a journey on the autobahn, obviously. Specifically, the journey from Cologne to Bonn on the A555, which was the very first autobahn, I mean, built by the Nazis. So let's move that to one side. So I have that down as a different road. So you have Dusseldorf to Hamburg. Yes. Yeah. There are conflicting reports of this. Wikipedia says Dusseldorf to Hamburg. There are other articles I read in my research which says it's a, it's after the A555 because that was the first autobahn. Now, Cologne to Bonn is a much shorter journey <laughs> than Dusseldorf to Hamburg. <laughs> Dusseldorf to Hamburg is, is... I mean, it's a fucking hell of a journey. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, I I don't know. I, I've read I've read a few articles that said it was about the A five five five, but anyway, it's certainly to recreate the sound of being on the autobahn. And yeah, the Hutter, you know, says that just the the experience of driving on the autobahn was an exciting experience that makes you run through a huge variety of feelings. And the the idea was that the song would try to convey that, and and it really does. 
it, you know, like in so many different ways, which we're going to um, delve into because there's a lot to there's a lot to uncover in this song. There certainly is, and I suggest we start doing so. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm going to talk through this in what I've loosely called movements. All right, mm-hmm. so I'm going to start right from the start up to about three minutes twenty. So you start off with the sound of a car door closing, the engine starts. You know, you hear the car driving off. Then the sort of vocoded auto barn comes in, and then that just delightful bass line. That oh my god, it's wonderful. It is, and I mean. It's such an iconic opening. I know that it's Kraftwerk. Like when I first first heard it, obviously I knew I was listening to Kraftwerk, but this this sets the template for their sound and what what you know to be Kraftwerk going forward. Yep. And as we're going to talk, we're going to touch on it so many times. Not just this album, but it's a template that's been recreated by dozens of acts over the last fifty years since this came out. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the main riff, the do 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 do, which is just so simple, but it's just the heart of the song, and the fact that they keep coming mm-hmm. back to it throughout. It's just we've said this a few times that we can't put ourselves back into 1974. We've said this about a load of albums, and and, and the same is true here. But just try and imagine hearing this. It's just like hearing music from another planet. Yeah, I can't think of any other words to describe it. It just, what is this? Yeah, you'd listen to this and just go, like, seriously, what the fuck? This is mad. Mm-hmm. Just imagining, like, the first time you heard a vocoder. Yep. I mean, like, when, you know, for for our generation, the first time we heard Cher <laughs> use auto <laughs> Oh my god! Like it, you know, like everyone knows that, like that song, just for just for that. So, like everyone would have known. <laughs> but yeah, like that vocoder must have sounds like the future, exactly. And okay, and this is something I, uh, we'll come back to this as well. Uh, and you've already touched on it, actually. Jean Michel Jarre being a bit sniffy about the poppiness of this tune. Well, yeah, that's part of its genius. So I said when I talked about why I chose these albums that there's a lot of stuff that came before, which is really difficult to get into. You've got to really work hard at it. Tangerine Dream. I, I do like Tangerine Dream quite a lot, but it's hard work. This is catchy. This has got a hook, both in terms of the sounds you hear, the bass line, the main riff, and then when the lyrics come in, as we've already said, we're fine, 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 and after alto, but it's, it gets in your head. Like, it's not a criticism to say, this is mm-hmm. poppy. It's fucking genius. Oh, my God, they've combined these new, completely revolutionary, innovative technologies with really catchy pop music. That is mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Well, the the fact that you can do a 22-minute song that has hooks and, like, various different kind of hooks is an incredible achievement and to dismiss it as well it's a bit poppy and i'm i'm a bit beyond that is frankly fuck off because a perfectly crafted pop song is a fucking hard thing to do that's why not everyone can do it that's why whilst you may not necessarily like the music of abba is you can absolutely appreciate the fucking craft that goes into, well, any of their songs, but particularly something like uh, The Winner Takes It All, because 
It's a brilliant pop song. Exactly that. Agreed entirely. And actually, as to spoil something we're going to go into next week, the track that Jean-Michel Jarre is most known for, which we will talk about next week, could also be described as a perfectly crafted, extremely catchy pop song. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we need to move on because we are three minutes into a 23-minute song. So let's <laughs> let's pick the pace up. Okay. Well, actually, <laughs> so the next movement I've said is is from about three, 20, three minutes 20 to uh, just before seven minutes. And it is a literal change of pace. We have moved out of the city. We are now accelerating along the motorway. You've got the way the drums and the bass line combine. To me, it evokes visions of lampposts whizzing past you, you know, street lamps whizzing past you. Have you written that as well? No, do you know what? I hadn't written it down, but like it's exactly what I had I had in mind. And I, it, I was about to say exactly the same thing. It, you do get that feeling of the lamppost whizzing. And it, yep. I can perfectly imagine in my mind's eye that I am in a car speeding along a motorway. It absolutely brings you right into that. 100% it does. And then on top of that, you've got... And so, the one thing I should have said, this is not a purely electronic album. There are some, let's say, conventional instruments throughout the album. And here's one. You've got, you've got Florian Schneider's flute coming in with the little licks and riffs that come throughout, which, to me, again, just... They do emphasize that feeling of wonder and excitement of being on a motorway and seeing these sights and just shooting through the countryside so (laughs) again you have perfectly encapsulated my thoughts really is that the flute element is like you just so you know you're on a long motorway journey so you're going on like you're going on holiday somewhere when you're a kid and until you get onto the mo- like you get out of get out of town and get onto the motorway it's like oh, dead boring but now you're on the motorway oh it's exciting we're going yeah. somewhere now like this is yeah. this is dead exciting and like that kind of upbeat flute is that kind of excitement of the journey journey ahead and it it's also akin to that yeah, you've left the city, you've left the urban conurbation, and look, there's green fields. There's possibly an advert for a discount plumbing thing in a farmer's field somewhere. <laughs> this is a good point. When did this? Tra- I mean, it's a good idea to be fair. But when did this trend of getting an old fucking lorry trailer and sticking an advert on the side of it and sticking it in a farmer's field by the motorway? When did that start? <laughs> I mean, it's it's good guerrilla advertising, I suppose, but like I've no idea when. But I am properly disturbed by the one on the M6 that um, has like it's an advert for buy your baby clothes, and it is a woman like or a, a headless torso uh, <laughs> pushing a stroller. It, it's quite disturbing. I know the one you mean? Yeah, it is. It's like around Sandbach. It's between Sandbach and Middlewich. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Again, talk about niche. Uh, all I've got to say about driver on the M6 is vote pies. <laughs> it's, it's better than driving on the um, on the 57, which um, if you get to Switch Island, it says pandemic. Oh, I bet that's one of Alfie's army. <laughs> Back to the song. Uh, so, from around about 6.45 to just after 13 minutes... We recenter ourselves. We go back to the main riff, the main refrain. But it doesn't take long before things l- literally break down. Not uh, not the car, 
but the, you know there's a literal breakdown in the song and for 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 a good 5 or 6 minutes we are treated to an electronic recreation of the sounds of the road cars and trucks rushing by horns blaring even the sound of tires rolling along the carriage like just oh my god so let's compose ourselves for a second or just me <laughs> uh, ralph hutter in uncut he says the white stripes on the road I notice them driving home every day from the studio. Then the car sounds, the radio. It's like a loop, a continuum, part of the endless music of Kraftwerk. In Autobahn, we put car sounds, horn, basic melodies and turning motors, adjusting the suspension, the tyre pressure, rolling on the asphalt, that gliding sound, when the wheels go onto those painted stripes. It's sound poetry. What a lovely phraseology sound poetry yeah it's a very german phrase but it, it's absolutely perfect to describe that they also managed to the kind of rumble strips they managed to do that with the <laughs> exactly it's incredible it's so back to sound poetry i agree it's a very germanic phrase i actually imagine that there is a single word for it in german and that, that word has at least 38 <laughs> syllables <laughs> It's not like basket. It's not like got like a load of axes lashed in there. (laughs) (laughs) So the sounds of the speeding vehicles and the car horns that you hear, they were created by sort of playing chords on the Mini Moog synthesizer, recording them to tape, but then looping the tape backwards and then altering the the pitch and the speed that it was being played at to create the the Doppler effect. I mean thinking mm-hmm. to that extent about what does it sound like being on the motorway it's exactly right you hear the increasing pitch as a vehicle is approaching you and then the rapid mm-hmm. decrease in pitch as it goes past you it's just so clever mind-blowing yeah i mean i've got i've got nothing really useful to add here because you've described it perfectly the you know being able to to recreate the Doppler effect on a record is fair play, you know. Yep, exactly that. Uh, okay, so so to me, the way that this section kind of segs into the next bit is the first bit was like the excitement of the journey, and this, like in this bit, it's kind of you know when you drive, you're on a long motorway drive, and there's periods where the traffic sort of concertinas together and you're very close in and then there's like a long downhill section and then it stretches out again. Like th- this section kind of takes you through that element of a long journey on the on the autobahn. Brilliant. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. It's, it's a very astute observation. Okay, just very quickly, the next bit I've written down is from about 13 minutes to 16 minutes. And the only thing, so it, again, you come back to that main riff, that main refrain. The one thing I, I want to call out here is you've got a few bits of sort of lo-fi AM quality sound that mimics a radio being tuned and listening to something on the radio. Again, it's just so simple but so mm-hmm. cleverly done. Yeah, because when you're on a long motorway journey, that's what you're going to do, no matter where you are are in the world. At some point, you start fucking about with the radio because you don't like yep. the music that's on. You don't like whichever bell end is talk. If you're listening to talk radio, whatever it is, you do something to change the listening to something else that you want to listen to at the time. 
Okay, and then just lastly, the, the final movement is so you're from about about 16 minutes right to the end. You've got a breakdown uh, and the, the wistful vocals come in. But then the pace picks up and you've got that lovely, joyous synth pop sound comes in. It's Do you know what it reminds me of this bit? So you talked about the excitement of beginning the journey and getting onto the motorway. This is the excitement of... I'm now starting to see my destination on the horizon and it's getting closer and closer and closer and it's exciting and what's it got to offer and all that looks, you know, I'll go there, I'll see that. It's just, this is another exciting end to the song. Yeah, it, you're coming close to where you're going. You don't, you don't need to stop at a happy eater or a little chef. You're almost there, like you're looking forward to it. Yeah, exactly that. So that is Autobahn. Now, before we move on, you can hear... In this section in particular, just how influential Kraftwerk were, just how influential Autobahn was and continues to be. Because I can hear you trace forward to the likes of Gary Newman, Dave Stewart, Phil Oakey, Vince Clark, the Pet Shop Boys, and even some fellow we're going to talk about next week. This sets the template. It, I mean, it, de- it definitely does. And I think there's a slight unfairness that... You know, the Pet Shop Boys, you know, the Human League, um, certainly the early stuff, you know, loads of stuff that Vince Clark was involved with. It's all sort of referred to as very cold, very, for want of a better, and particularly in relation to this, very Teutonic. But I don't think, yeah. like, whilst it does have a very German feel to it, that this isn't a cold song because I think the movements, there are moments of levity, there's moments of there's excitement and joy at the start, and then there's a kind of a gradual movement into you're nearly there. I'm, I can't wait to, yeah. to whatever, what we're going to do when we get there. So it's, it's a different thing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. There's a reverie to this song that belies that, Teutonic reputation that it has, and uh, yeah, it's 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 oversimplifying it to say that it is an industrial German sound. Yeah, the, there's there's a lot more heart to it, but I think that it's a lazy thing that can be put forward by people who don't or are, are more influenced by the stagecraft than the actual music. A very good point, and one which I am going to raise next week as well. So, I have nothing more to say about Autobahn other than that it is a magnificent 23 minutes of music. Shall we move on to side two? Yeah, I think we should. It's a magnificent opus um, that we will move on from. Yeah, okay. So, we move on to side two. And the second track on the album is called Comet and Melody 1. Comet Melody 1. It apparently was inspired by the comet Kohutek, which passed close to Earth in 1973. So, tonally, this is a complete contrast to what we've just listened to. It's dark, it's eerie, you've got mysterious whooshes and whispers all over the place which conjure up images of of the vastness of space. What do you think? For me, unsurprisingly, you can't talk about Commenten Melody Eins without talking about Commenten Melody Divai because they, they are a piece. So the the actual comet that, as Tim says, was Comet Kahootek, um, which passed Earth in 73 and was expected to be the, it was nicknamed Comet of the Century. And 
the first movements, the first song, it's very sparse, sinister, foreboding, and it it kind of grows gradually throughout. And and you know, you could say that that's kind of related to the to the worry about the approach of this comet. It's coming close to Earth. It's you know, so you don't know what it's it's passing through space. So, but it's also it's gonna co- it's gonna come close. How close is it actually gonna be? Is it the is it the thing that's gonna end the world? And that kind of fear and foreboding is is foreshadowed throughout this this um, piece. The only other thing I've said to that is, is it also gives a sense that the surface of a comet is literally an alien world, an unforgiving alien world. Mm-hmm. What you then have to contrast that, and it, it comes and it goes, but around three minutes in, you've got a really lovely, gentle piano riff that just comes in and, and almost gives a sense of, an air of hope that this celestial body may actually bring our salvation. But then by the end, it's gone again. And you've back to that that sinister, bassy synth part. Now, you're right. You can't talk about the two tracks separately, really. What I really like about the two of them is that the really delightful and uplifting riff that is the centerpiece of, of part two it's actually the same riff that is the centerpiece of part one, mm-hmm. but it's obviously played in a much higher octave and it's played in a major key rather than a minor key. Just such a little musical touch, which just completely changes the feel and the tone of the, of the tune. It again, remarkable, if you ask me. Yeah, the two pieces together are absolutely amazing. Now, before we move on to the second, the second piece, I can definitely see um, the influence on Bowie in this first piece, oh, God, particularly yeah. Warsaw um, from Low, from the mm-hmm. sort of instrumental side to Low, and you can hear that influence and that sound in this. Yep. So let's move on to Comet and Melody Zwei. So uh, just very quickly before we talk about the, the song itself, we've already we've already talked a little bit about it. The, it was the B-side to the single release of, of Autobahn, and it was then also released as a single in its own right, but it didn't chart on either side of the Atlantic. So this this piece has, as, you, as you've said, it has a much brighter and positive sound. It has a greater kind of sonic complexity to it. And I suppose like it's the counterpoint to what we're talking about in the first piece. The, that was focused on the sparseness of space, the worry that you know it might destroy the earth, and this is the it's like the relief that it's past earth, and now you can look at the beauty of the comet as it passes by and admire it. A lot more hopeful and triumphant <laughs> than its predecessor, evoking visions of a comet blazing across the sky. <laughs> but it it absolutely is. It, that's exactly it. So. I mentioned the riff being the same riff, you know, minor versus major. That juxtaposition, but also continuity from part one to part two, it's so astutely done because it does make them of a piece. It does join them together, but it also mm-hmm. forces you to contrast them and actually reflect on well, what's this one evoking and what's this one evoking. It's... um remarkable as i've said that word several times already that's i can't think of it one if you just take it on its own merit without it looking at it as a as a piece that it's an absolutely gorgeous piece of music like a, a quick sort of point on comic kahootek so as i said it, it was supposed to be the comet of the century 
and it didn't it didn't live up to expectations that whilst it was visible um, with the naked eye and everything, it wasn't the spectacular uh, scene that everyone expected it to be. Very much the be here now of comets. <laughs> so just lastly, before we move on, which is another one for me, you can hear how many acts were influenced by Kraftwerk, including Jean-Michel Jarre. You listen to Equinox, anything off Equinox in particular, next to this, and it just, again, calls into contrast the the folly of that quote, which you mentioned right at the start, because there's a direct correlation, I think. Well, within the two pieces of music, they brilliantly demonstrate the light and dark that an electronic piece of music can evoke. Yeah, exactly that. And what I like is that so far we've gone from a long but very uplifting piece in Autobahn. We've gone very dark and sinister. We've then gone really uplifting again. And then we move on to track four, the penultimate track, Mitternacht, Midnight. Uh, and we're at, again, we're back to something very dark, very sinister. Well, it's called Midnight and it's supposed to represent, evoke, whatever you want, you know, being awake in the middle of the night, basically. And the the sinister sounds that you hear when you're up in the middle of the night, and the way that every little sound you hear seems to be amplified, you know, dripping taps, creaking pipes, the wind outside the window. If the light, if it was light outside, you'd be you wouldn't think twice about. It. But in the middle of the night, it's everything is amplified you, because you can't see as well. All of your other senses are heightened. That's what I get from this. Yeah, it's incredibly sparse, and in order to to give the idea of being awake in the middle of the night, it fills the brief brilliantly. It's incredibly atmospheric. I, I, I'll I'll admit it's not necessarily my favourite piece, but I mean, as with all of the pieces thus far, they do a remarkable job in creating a sense of of time and space just just through through creating soundscapes it's it's a it's an amazing piece of work and you don't necessarily need to need to like it or love it but you can definitely get what they're doing yes so i do really like it i can understand how it is perhaps difficult to penetrate because it isn't very tuneful but i don't care what i really respond to here is the way they are able to create such vivid images within your mind as to what the song is about. It's breathtaking. It, it's claustrophobic, this. So, sorry again to make another Bowie reference, but in an earlier clash, we talked about uh, Nightclubbing by Iggy Pop, where it absolutely evokes the dark danger of the back streets of Berlin. And clearly, there is a lineage from this to that. Definitely. And to exemplify what you've just said, the electric violin that comes in and creates some, some frankly, blood-curdling howls, shrieks. Mm-hmm. It could be a dog howling, it, it could be an owl hooting, or it could be a next-door neighbour being bludgeoned to death with a four-iron. You know, literally, that's that's what it... You know. Yeah, yeah. As I said, I can understand how you might think it's not my favourite, because it is a bit difficult to penetrate. But actually, this is equally as evocative of the subject matter as Autobahn for me. And for that reason, I really admire this a lot. No, I mean, don't don't get me wrong that I admire the craft of it. It's just... You admire the craft and the work. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Should we go on to the final track? We're only five tracks, but yeah, the final track, Morgen Spaziergang, or Morning Walk. Beautiful language. (laughs) 
I like German. <laughs> I, do you know what I do? I, I actually do like the German thing of having compound words. I do enjoy that. <laughs> right. So, mortgage back to your gang. It recreates the sights and the sounds of the dawn. So, Ralph Hutter, he said, Mortgage back to your gang is what we wrote when we came out of the studio. We were always working at night. Then in the morning, everything seems fresh and our ears are open again. Everything's silent. So, the first thing I want to say about this is it's the perfect way to follow on from Mitternacht. So, again, exactly as we said, you've got the Comet and Melody uh, 1 and 2 are companion pieces. The same thing here. After the Peril of Mitternacht, you've got the, the respite, if you like, of Sunrise, of the Dawn. It's a great companion piece, is what I'm saying. It starts off with the sound of the Dawn chorus created on a synthesizer. Then you get uh, a, a synthesized sound of, of running water and the day begins. You've got the electric piano bit that comes in, which to me is the sunrise. Then the flute. Oh, just it's, it's beautiful. It is. And then for the second time on Album Clash, we're, I'm going to talk about good use of the recorder. <laughs> it's a milk float and the clink of bottles away from a perfect evocation of coming back <laughs> after a heavy night out. <laughs> Absolutely right. And what I love about it, so it starts off, as I said, with these synthesized electronic sounds, but by the end, it's all on traditional instruments. Mm -hmm. And it's a lovely, lovely way to end the album. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful piece of music. And I suppose what you can, like, if you you wanted to try and put them all together as, as a collection, that you've gone on the Autobahn to visit this city, Look at the comet. Um, you're a bit worried about it, but then it all passes great. Then you're out at midnight. Mm, it's a bit dodgy, wherever you are. But then the sun comes up and everything's all great. Lovely. The last thing I want to say. So the, the, the main melody from this is a reprise of one of the riffs from Autobahn, from the title track. And maybe I'm reading too much into this. The fact that, as I said, it... it is played with conventional classical instruments. Are they saying goodbye to their classical roots? Because, as I said, both Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider were classically trained musicians. Are they saying goodbye to their their past? Are they embracing going fully electronic? Which they do. Every album they've released since this has abandoned all conventional instrumentation has been purely electronically done. Perhaps I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. Judas. <laughs> das ist nicht britische Musik. Das ist deutsche Musik. <laughs> I don't know the German for play it fucking loud. Um, well, it's, maybe it was in the Danzig Freihallen. <laughs> no, it's Dance Centrum in Stuttgart. <laughs> it's that the longest it's ever taken us to do our obligatory Simpsons reference, by the way. <laughs> Well, we also, um, yet again, have uh, referenced the free trade hall gig, so you know. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. I I love this. It's a great closer. Uh, It's a beautiful way to end the album, as we've said. Yeah, it is. Lovely stuff. Okay, shall we do some reviews? Yeah, let's do it. So, contemporary reviews were somewhat muted. Writing in the Rolling Stone in 1975... 
John Mendelssohn said not to take anything away from Ralph, Florian, Klaus, or even Wolfgang, who are probably real nice geezers once you get to know them. I mean, geezers, fucking hell. But this is nicht so good as Walter Carlos, who hasn't been in the top ten in months and months. <sighs> it gets worse, Kev. Well, you're not onto Lester Bangs yet, so, you know. Well, exactly. Well, before we even get to Lester Bangs, Barry Miles, he wrote... This is what your fathers fought to save you from. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, and then as he said, in an interview with the enemy, Lester Banks asked if Kraftwerk were the final solution for music. The final solution. Jesus Christ. The image accompanying that article. Do you know what the image was that accompanied that article, Kev? I'm sure you've read the same same review. Yes, I do know what it is. It was a press photo of Kraftwerk superimposed onto... The Nuremberg Rally. Wow. Even for 1970s Britain. Wow. I mean, it's 30 years at that point. Yep. And I would love to say that that is an obsession that the British have uh, recovered from, but we all know that's bollocks. <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, I mean, this country's definitely matured past that and aren't making fucking World War Two references in relation to nothing to do with that. Might might mention something about that in a bit. Don't know. <laughs> right. As with a few albums we've recovered, it's fair to say that Autobahn was reappraised in the years after it's released. So, in 1985, in a retrospective review for the NME, Simon Witter, whilst admittedly failing to apologise for the grossly inappropriate Lester Bangs article, uh, he wrote, Though not a patch on their four subsequent albums, agreed, Autobahn has enormous historical significance as the album that introduced the world to Kraftwerk, one of the most extraordinary groups ever to achieve pop success. Yeah, okay. Right, okay. Okay. Before, well, no, no, no. Before we get to Nobby, just hold your horses. I'm not there yet. Just the last one. Our old friend Stephen Thomas Irwine from All Music. He said, although Kraftwerk's first three albums were groundbreaking in their own right, Autobahn is where the group's hypnotic electronic pulse genuinely came into its own. The main difference between Autobahn and its predecessors is how it develops an insistent, propulsive pulse that makes the repeated rhythms and riffs of the shimmering electronic keyboards and trance-like guitars all the more hypnotising. It's a pioneering album, even if its electronic trances might not capture the attention of all listeners. I think that puts it perfectly, and once again, he has said in the space of two paragraphs what we have taken over two hours to say. (laughs) (laughs) And what um, the next uh, review that you quote will fail to do at all. Oh, for fucking hell. All right, so what does Robert Criscoll say? So, I mean, of course, Nobby's back. I I said you've got Christmas off, but you didn't think it was going to last that he wasn't going to be here, did you? I mean, of course he's back. Okay, he was writing again for the Village Voice. He said, The Iron Butterfly of Uber Rock, Mike Oldfield for unmitigated simpletons, sort of, and yet in my mitigated way, I don't entirely disapprove. A melody or two worth hearing twice emanates from a machine determined to rule all music with a steel hand and some miler. And the title track is longer than In a Gadda Davida, sans drum solo, with the lyric... 
Trot provided that could become the What's Life, a magazine of high school German classes all over America. <laughs> he gave the album a C+. However, he did later upgrade that to a B-. minus. Okay, I am I'm a fairly educated person and I understand many words. I have no idea what the fuck he was on about there. What's it's a word soup, that's the problem. Every word in there means something, but together they just mean nothing. In my own mitigated way, I don't entirely disapprove. What the fucking hell are you talk Shut up, you pompous prick. Maybe we're misreading Crisco. And it's actually Joycean stream of consciousness a la uh, Ulysses. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that he would be absolutely <laughs> delighted to be compared to James Joyce. To be delighted with that. I would say that is the most stinging criticism one could give him. But it's not because he'd love it. <laughs> No, it's essentially a monkey throwing words at a wall. Exactly. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. And he, very much, is the blurt of times. Hey. Uh, Okay, should we do Legacy? There's not much of a legacy to this. Well, I mean, initial response in their home country, at least, was very much apathetic. So Wolfgang Fleur in Uncut, again, he said, in Germany, artists were often not well regarded unless they've scored great achievements abroad. Our success in the US finally brought good headlines in the German newspapers. Uh, There was also quite a significant knock-on effect for many of their contemporaries. So Michael Rother, as I said, who was once member of Kraftwerk and then formed Neu, he said suddenly US record companies were coming over trying to sign everybody who could hold a guitar. So there's the impact in terms of what it meant in Germany and what it meant for German music. And it goes back to what I said, creating that sense of national identity. Well, and I suppose as well that it gave kraut rock, which had been a kind of slightly dismissive phrase, it gave it a cachet that certainly was built upon, again, uh, apologies for the obligatory Bowie reference, obviously when he and Iggy go to Berlin, Germany has a has a cool that it doesn't really have until this point. Obviously, they're still trying to emerge from the shadow of, of the war, but this is a confident, a confident Germany that is a bit more comfortable in its own skin and, and it's able to express its national identity in a much more positive manner and mature manner as well yeah definitely that anyway uh, i just want to talk about their first appearance on uk tv do you know what it was <laughs> i don't but like my brain wants to say something like cracker jack or saturday superstore or something akin to that no the first appearance on uk uk tv was on Tomorrow's World in September of 1975. (laughs) I mean, so, in all seriousness, I guess it shows just how groundbreaking the album was that Tomorrow's World wanted to to feature them as as the future of music. (laughs) This is the reason I wanted to call it out. On that show, the presenter, Derek Cooper, who who was doing the voiceover for that, because he went to Kling Klang Studio, at the end of that snippet... He said, next year, Kraftwerk hopes to eliminate the keyboards altogether and build jackets with electronic lapels that can be played by touch. 
which just proves once and for all that 90% of all the predictions made by Tomorrow's World were utter bollocks. So was the 1980s keyboard tie, was that aspirational? (laughs) It doesn't work. I'm pressing the keys. It doesn't work. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Tomorrow's World, like... You go and fucking smear jam on one of your CDs and see what happens. And, that, and then, sorry, not just smear jam on it, then set fire to that jam with a fucking blowtorch. Do you know what? I was, whilst you were talking about Tomorrow's World, my brain instantly um, went to the CD with jam on it. Yeah, fuck <laughs> off. Look, if a Sony CD Walkman could kill a fucking CD, jam would basically melt it forever. <laughs> Putting a cup of tea down too hard on a coaster next to your stereo would fuck a cd thinking too hard near a cd might make it skip <laughs> exactly like seriously cds are the worst format onto which music has ever been produced it was more compressed than vinyl or cassette it was nowhere near as durable as either of them you couldn't fix it with a fucking pencil which you could with a cassette <laughs> like it was just shit no bad yeah. cds no Home taping is killing music. Can I get back to craft work, please? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so we've talked about Bowie and the uh, influence on him. He said in an interview with Uncut Magazine, my attention had been swung back to Europe with the release of Kraftwerk's Autobahn in 1974. The preponderance of electronic instruments convinced me that this was an area I had to investigate a little further. What I was passionate about in relation to Kraftwerk was their singular determination to stand apart from stereotypical American chord sequences and their wholehearted embrace of a European sensibility displayed through their music. This was their very important influence on me. So, uh, he named the track V2 Schneider on Heroes after Florian Schneider. And on the Kraftwerk Trans-Europe Express album in 1977, on the title track, they included the lyric from Station to Station, Back to Dusseldorf City, Meet Iggy Pop and David Bowie, Trans-Europe Express. So, there was clearly a mutual respect so, yeah, I mean, the, the albums that followed on from Autobahn, Radioactivity in 75, Trans-Europe Express 77, The Man Machine in 78, Computer World 81, and Electric Cafe in 86. To me, as a run of six albums in the space of 10 years, you don't get much better than that. I think, in particular, the four from Radioactivity up to and including Computer World is as strong as any run of four albums that any artist has ever put together and I I really do mean that I think they are all phenomenal pieces of work those four albums so I I don't know all those albums so I I couldn't I couldn't comment but that's high praise indeed to say that that a run is that strong though so I I genuinely genuinely do and so in particular I would urge you to listen to Trans Europe Express and The Man Machine because they are two of the greatest electronic music albums ever released, in my opinion. 77, 78, in a row. Wow. Phenomenal. If you don't listen to any of the Kraftwerk albums, listeners, listen to those two, because they're fucking brilliant. Okay, that's a, that's a strong recommend. 
so the song Trans Europe Express, you will know the main riff for it because it's the riff that was sampled by Africa mm-hmm. Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force on Planet Rock. So the influence of Kraftwerk isn't just on what became synth pop in the 80s. It extends into virtually every genre. Yeah, you know, their the influence is writ large and it, they should be talk Like, I know it's, it's not that they're not known. But they do, they do kind of get missed off like these sort of most influential artist things when they they influence so much and for so long as well. Absolutely right. I'm just going to list some of the artists who have by name cited Kraftwerk as an influence. So Bowie we've just talked about, Vince Clark we've mentioned, Martin Gore from Depeche Mode, Andy McCluskey from OMD, Bjork, Aphex Twin, Gary Newman, Phil Oakey, Blondie, U2, The Chemical Brothers, Joy Division and New Order, Public Service Broadcasting, LCD Sound System and Pharrell Williams. So again, these aren't purely you know synth pop artists this is this is people from across the spectrum of pop music for the last 50 years have said Kraftwerk have influenced my sound that just if it wasn't for Kraftwerk if it wasn't for Autobahn then electronic music wouldn't be a thing and I would therefore suggest that this is perhaps the most influential album of any that we have covered to date on Album Clash yes that includes Pet Sounds and Sgt Pepper's that's how highly I place this album in terms of influence. It's a difficult thing to say in terms of it's more influential than X, Y, or Z, but Autobahn has a huge legacy because, as, you, as you've brilliantly highlighted, the tentacles of this album traverse so many different genres, so many different eras and styles and approaches to music. It's... And that and that's also testament to the craft that has gone into this album and the subsequent albums that follow. Craftwork are and should be rightly lauded as innovators who push the envelope in terms of what music could be. Agree entirely with that, and I think that is a perfect way to bring things to a conclusion and move on to best song, worst song. So Kev, go on. What's your best? What's your worst? So, I mean, I could be, I could be Johnny Obvious, and I could, I could say the title track because the title track's amazing. But I'm not going to pick it because essentially it's a bit like, it's a bit like a day in the life in that there's so many different kind of songs going on within the one thing. Well, yeah, I'm not doing, I'm not doing it twice. So I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come down on my best song is Commenton uh, Melody Two because I think it's a beautiful piece of music. My worst song. It's not necessarily worst song. It's just the song that I didn't connect with the most, and I said it at the time was Mitternacht. Yeah, it wasn't my favorite, but I could see the skill, the craft, the just the genius of creating that atmospheric soundscape there. Fair enough. So I'm going to do my worst first, and similarly to you, there's not one I dislike on here. I will probably have to say it's Comet and Melody 1, Comet and Melody 1, it's purely because, I don't know, I, I, I love Mitternacht, I think it's it's an incredible piece of music, so is this, but it's just, it's perhaps not as strong as the other 
four tracks. That's all I can say about it. It's one of those where you've got to pick one. So I'm going to land on that, but I still really, really like it. In terms of my best, I am going to be Johnny Obvious. And what else could it be? Yes, at 23 minutes long, it's self-indulgent, but it's a masterpiece. I can't understand why anyone would want to listen to a three and a half minute version. Even the nine and a half minute version that they remixed for the mix in 91 doesn't do it for me. I like it, but it's not this. It's a masterpiece. And it's really catchy as well, as we've said. So easily the best track on this album, Autobahn. I don't know. I like I, I deliberately didn't choose it because it's the behemoth of the album, and that's what yeah, I, I usually I pick. It. So I, I decided to do something different this time. No, exactly. And I, and I usually try and be the contrarian, so it's nice that we've switched roles for once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, that pretty much wraps us up. So, Kev, how can people keep in touch with the show, please? So, um, where we are at the at the minute of the time of recording is the another variant is running wild within the country at the minute. So, whilst on Twitter, you can uh, come across um, some people who probably have at the, at the very best bachelors of arts degrees who've suddenly become experts in vir- virology. <laughs> whilst on Twitter, you can check out our Twitter page. Um, a clash album where you won't find any misguided attempts to take some kind of fucking horse tranquilizer or any kind of shite like that instead of something that's been crafted by people who know what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> also, you may want to check out our Insta for carefully curated content that is no longer blocked by lizards. Um, and if you want to find that, it's a clash album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can uh, send us an electronic mail at albumclash at gmail.com. Brilliant. (laughs) So I agree with everything you said about the uh, amateur virologists and epidemiologists. And particularly those, as you say, you know, who are, let's say, the vocal and yet incredibly annoying minority (laughs) whom we've spoken about before. Mm-hmm. But it, it does it does work both ways. Everyone seems to be a, 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 an amateur epidemiologist, and everyone wants to read stuff into any piece of evidence and any piece of statistic. I get it, okay, I, but just fucking pipe down, please. You cannot comprehend how difficult these things are to model. At the time of recording, we are in the uh, period just before Christmas. This is when we should be debating which is the best quality street, which is the best roses which is the best celebration. This is what we're supposed to use our time for. Okay, that's easy. The purple one, the caramel cup, and the Malteser. So, done. No debate. Finish. <laughs> I do like the green triangle. Yeah, but it ain't the purple one. And everyone can agree that the toffee penny's shite. I mean, for one, it breaks your teeth. The toffee penny is shite. But it's still not the worst quality street. I mean, imagine putting a fucking jar bounty in a fucking jar of quality. What the fuck are you doing, quality street? <laughs> or, as we've discussed before, the Mars company putting bounty in as their as the last treat in their celebrations calendar is the greatest piece of shithouse behaviour I've ever known. Absolute shitbags. So when you're listening to this, it is, well, no sooner than the 30th of December... Have a great new year, everyone. We hope you've had a lovely Christmas or 
however you've celebrated the end of 2021. It's perhaps been a slightly better year than 2020, but it's still ending on a pretty shit note. We hope you've enjoyed what we've brought to you through the year. We've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Mm -hmm. As we always say, get involved on Twitter, on Insta, send us an email if you want to, leave the ratings, leave the reviews, click that subscribe button, tell your mates about us. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We will be back next week with our first show of 2022, in which Kev will be completing this clash by taking us through... Oxygen by Jean-Michel Jacques. But yeah, until then, this has been Album Clash. I have been Tim. I have been Kev in 2021. (laughs) Who knows what we will be in 2022. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.